I'm Aaron Leonard, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Paul Williams, the director, not the songwriter or the rock critic or the architect. The other Paul Williams. In this, our fourth season of the World is Wrong podcast, we're doing something a little different. I'm your host, Andras Jones, and Paul, Paul Williams, that is, has graciously agreed to join us to share excerpts and outtakes from his memoir, Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen, and Holy Men, currently available as part of the Screen Classics Collection from the University Press of Kentucky. Williams is the director of The November Men, which World is Wrong listeners will already be familiar with, as well as films like Out of It from 1969 and The Revolutionary from 1970, both starring a young John Voight. Williams, with his Pressman Williams production partner, Edward Pressman, was a producer of films like Brian De Palma's Sisters and The Phantom of the Paradise, as well as Terrence Malick's Badlands. Beyond the movies, Paul rode many of the movements of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, both political and cultural, with characters as varied as Richard Dreyfuss, Leonard Cohen, Elliot Gould, and most of the important directors associated with New Hollywood. If you're interested in the story of New Hollywood, Paul's memoir fills in some major gaps. And if you're too lazy and or cheap to get the book and read it, well, this podcast will give you a taste of what you're missing. In today's episode, Paul will be speaking about his experience with the Sanford Meisner acting technique and how that corresponds with his time as a student of the Buddhist teacher Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche. In 1972, I exit the elevator at the Manhattan Loft of Karen Smith, who works at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Asia Department, and Jeff Steingarten, Harvard class of 64, now the Vogue food critic. All the New York white people are shrinks or writers. They pad around and speak in church whispers. Definitely weird. The dozen dark men in orange robes talk in normal tones to each other. A robed, dark, six-year-old with a top knot plays with a hand puppet. I sit down next to him, pick up another puppet, and we play. Our puppets hide, surprise each other, and chase each other. This kid laughs happily and often. Pressure strangely builds against my left cheek as we play. After five minutes, the pressure is strong enough to push my head around to the right. No one is touching me. I stare at a six-foot, nine-inch monk into the brightest eyes I have ever seen. I rest in those bright high beams. I remove the hand puppet and thank my little friend with a smile and bow and walk the six feet over to the giant man. He sits on a bed on a platform and he is so big that his head is not far below me and I'm six feet tall when I stand in front of him. After several moments of eye contact, I slap him hard two times on the sides of his huge upper arms near his shoulders. I say, Hi, I'm Paul. Paul, what's your name? A modestly sized monk sits on the floor to his right and translates. The formidable monk listens. He looks directly at me. 
Suddenly his big arms and big hands outstretch and pummel my upper arms. Dingo! Dingo! is what I hear him say. He laughs. Despite my shoulder's sudden pain, I smile. Yeah, dingo! Dingo! These Tibetans are traveling around the world to raise dough to save their sacred texts from the invading Chinese. I say, Dingo, how do you like being on the road trying to raise money? Dingo's eyes are happy. The translator translates. Dingo looks at me from four feet away. Now pressure builds again on the left side of my face. An invisible hand pushes my head around to the right. I look at the wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling bookshelves filled with Jeffrey and Karen's books. I am stunned. I stand at an intersection of two dirt roads that appear to be in some place that reminds me of India. There are different colored one-story buildings on either side of the road that diminish to the horizon. Old people, children, and teenagers walk right past me. A big brown ox lumbers past me a foot away. An ox. I begin a hallucination test drill. (laughs) First, my eyes are on the road that leads to the horizon. I tilt my head up from the view of the road, but I see only the blue sky. In a hallucination, the road would rise up with my eyes, as my dead grandmother did in London when I dreamed of her after her death. As I tilt my head down, the dirt road reappears. Okay, next, the parallax conversion. Test it. When you stand in the middle of a railroad tracks, The tracks appear to run parallel to a distant vanishing point. If you bend down and bring your eyes near the railroad bed, the rails appear to converge nearby. Stand up and the rails appear parallel again into the distance. In an hallucination, standing up or squatting down, the rails will remain in a constant image. The brain supplies the vision, not the eyes. The road I stand on is lined by one-story houses on each side. They appear parallel to the road and only converge at the distant horizon. I do a deep knee bend. They appear to converge nearby. When I stand up, they appear parallel into the distance again. Okay, a final test. I slowly make a quarter turn to the left. I see a second long road run under me from the east. I am standing in the middle of a crossroads. When I turn left again another quarter, the first road continues its run under me to the south. I turn left another quarter. And now I see the continuation of the second crossroad heading west. And I turn again, returning to the north where I started. I see the first road lined by one-story houses parallel to the distant horizon. One cannot look around the corner in hallucination. I surrender any doubt. I am certainly in India or a place that looks to me like India. The muscles of my chest relax. I feel my heart warm. And then the wall of books slowly fades in and hides any view at all of my India. I know it lies just beyond the opaque bookshelves. Or not. Were my eyes in that distant country? I stand for a few moments and turn back to Dingo. He smiles. I look into his shining eyes, put my hands together, and bow. Dingo has responded to my question. What is it like being on the road trying to raise money? Dingo's teaching is all visual, but involves neither hallucination nor a simultaneous holographic superimposition, nor any discrepancy from everyday sight. I just see from a distant place. (laughs) 
Is this my road to Damascus? Uh, Saul was a Jew, blinded by a vision of Jesus, but he later changed his name to Paul. We embark on a two-hour conversation. Each time I have what I consider another bright idea about the perception of personality archetypes, he has a simple response that evaporates the thought into thin air, and I am simply empty and present, like a good actor. I decide right then to study the Meisner acting technique as soon as I get back to the West Coast. This chat to nowhere is another of Dingo's teaching methods called tantric theater. Dingo tells me when I smile that the lip of my tongue slightly protrudes through my teeth. It reveals my path to enlightenment is not the thinking head, nor the way of the instinctive gut, but is the way of the feeling heart. Years later, a devotee, actor Richard Gere, informs me that His Holiness is regarded with awe by Buddhists of every persuasion for his vision teachings. He is known to all the lamas as the great teacher of teachers. To put it to Westerners, if Einstein figured out how the atom bomb worked and taught everybody, and Oppenheimer built it, you could say that Dingo is Einstein and the Dalai Lama is Oppenheimer. The current 14th Dalai Lama considers Dingo his principal teacher. His Holiness, Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche. Dilgo? Dilgo. Not Dingo. The name of the native Australian dog, an apex predator. Dilgo knows his magnificent self not swayed by anything from the outside. Behind the name is the nameless, beyond thought. The Dalai Lama says of this greatest Lama of the 20th century, quote, Once you control inner element, you control outer elements. I am quite fortunate to see him, to receive his teachings. So therefore, now essential, important to implement this teaching in daily life, end quote. He laughs, quote, I am very, very grateful to him, end quote. Me too. Dilgo listens to everyone he meets and usually responds with good humor. I see, I see. I did not realize I was talking to the highest guy on the planet at the time. Home is where the infinite heart is. Remember. Hap! I look into Lisa's eyes in the small audience as John, alongside me, wraps the spot on my spine where the sound comes from. And then a bit lower down, and the pitch of my voice lowers. Peeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeee
emotional selfishness. After weeks, when I finally know my own feeling, I open up my eyes to include the partner's emotional state. After three months, as I repeat from deep within, I make good sounds, not upwardly displaced, higher-pitched, wordy explanations. No, I can express everything between love and hate and everything in between just by saying, you're wearing blue jeans. That's why in verbal communication, it's not the words, but the tone that matters. I could say, good night, I love you, in a tone that reveals the opposite. Or, I hate you, I hate you, and communicate nothing but love. And then we move on to, you make me feel, <laughs> what? And the response, I make you feel, no long explanation, just the simple word linked to the emotion you are having in that moment. As in, you make me feel angry. It sounds angry. Then your partner answers, I make you feel angry, and reveals their feeling from the effect your expression has had on them. Scared, hurt, surprised. Months of one-word identifications of each feeling as it occurs in the back and forth. There's a dramatic flow every bit as full as a scene with explanatory dialogue from a screenplay. After months, we get up out of our chairs and do improvisations. But first, before going on stage, we learn to do the check. Sitting silently with eyes shut for five minutes to recall the three most important emotional moments that you actually experienced within the last 24 hours. For example... You left your wallet in a store and only remembered minutes later in a panic as you went back to get it. Or your daughter cried when you left for work and made you feel like a bad parent. Or you were dying to eat a hot dog, but the stand was closed. You pick one of these events of the day that is still filled with emotion for you and put it at stake in the scene to come. In the scene, you say you want, for example, I want your shirt. And we have our private emotion at stake about why we want the shirt. But that is never spoken. It's your secret. If I don't get the shirt off his back, I will not get my wallet back. You enter the stage with the want and make the demand. And the other person always says no. They also have their private stake. And they never say why. They must keep their shirt. Only the what, that they will not let you have the shirt. A pure and intense drama ensues. If you are shooting a movie, you will always have a fresh, quote, alive emotion that privately you can put at stake when you say any dialogue supplied by the script. No problem of calling up ancient feelings when the camera rolls. The audience can feel you are never faking it because you are not. You are pretending to pretend. John, Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Bobby Duval, and Chris Walken made up one acting class at Sandy Meisner's Neighborhood Playhouse in Manhattan. Proval now starts a weekly workshop in L.A. that I go to for a decade. Andy Garcia, Richard Dreyfuss, Terry Garr, Judge Reinhold, and John are among other regulars. When I first start the Meisner work, I look forward to the high of the intensely present Friday night workshops. After a while... The high lasts into Saturday, and then even Sunday. Eventually, it just stays. All the world becomes a stage. A few shrinks, and all gurus and actors are hip to the same emptiness. Unlike most psychologists, neuroscientists, and philosophers, this is one giant step for Paul. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com 
or follow us on Instagram at the world is wrong podcast. And now back to the show. Eight notes scale an octave. Master the scale and you master the score. Paul, are you wearing blue jeans? I'm not wearing blue jeans. You're not wearing blue jeans. I'm not wearing blue jeans. You're not wearing blue jeans. I'm not wearing blue jeans. Are you getting tired of me asking you about that? I'm not wearing blue jeans. (laughs) This has been a very brief demonstration of (laughs) the Meisner technique uh, as performed (laughs) by Paul Williams and Andras Jones. It was one of my favorite selections from the book just because the, the Meisner acting technique was such a a huge influence on me. And I think I told you this in one of our first talks, I kind of credit it with ruining my acting career because it was such a (laughs) spiritual pursuit. It like, Uh it made me realize how profound this craft actually was. And (laughs) it just sort of made me very pretentious for a while. Um, uh-huh. or maybe not pretentious, whatever it's maybe come off as pretentious for a while, I guess. Well, you know, frankly, frankly, when you do uh, get to the essence of this emptiness of acting, uh, you really are mimicking the high state of the Buddha or, um, of the, uh, of the really talented empty shrink. I mean, it's really a profound state that you go into. Anyway, so you are entitled to uh, you know, those feelings. Were there any particular realizations that you remember having when you encountered the Meisner acting technique? Well, it, as you say, it was, um, well, I had this rare experience with the uh, principal teacher of the current Dalai Lama. He's now passed away, or he's no longer here. A fellow named Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. And he brought me on a uh, very, uh, you know, extraordinary uh, teaching. And at one point, toward the end, he did something he called tantric theater, in which he made any of my brilliant ideas disappear. I would tell him one idea about personality, and with a word, he'd make it disappear and send me back to the emptiness. And he kept doing that for an hour or two until I was completely empty. And it was that moment when I realized that I was in the empty state that I was going to study the Meisner technique as soon as I got back to L.A. Because that's, that's a technique that gets you to that emptiness through expression. So, yeah, it's funny. I got into the Meisner technique through the high Buddhists. They tend to detach in order to get empty, the lower lamas. Actors tend to express to get into the emptiness. It's like a 180-degree different technique, but they both they both deal with the same emptiness. And so you might say that's where East meets West, Rudyard Kipling. And certainly was the case for me. That's where the twain shall meet. <laughs> right. That's where the twain meet. And this what this class was in, that you got involved in was in Los Angeles. Well, at first it wasn't a class. Um, John Voigt was a friend of mine, and he was out on the West Coast, and he like we call it doing the work, and he wanted to do the work while he was 
you know, out on the West Coast. And David Proval also wanted to do the work. And I wanted to learn the work. And uh, there was, I think, Susan Martin. But in any event, we just formed a little group of five people with John uh, taking the uh, lead. And really, I was taught by John and uh, that group with David Proval and Susan Martin and me. And that's where I really learned it uh, originally. Uh, later, for 10 years, I was in the workshop that David Proval uh, had on uh, Melrose, where a lot of people went. Danny Garcia went there, Judge Reinhold, uh, Terry Garr. Uh, oh, John Voigt, Dreyfus showed up sometime. So it was quite a quite a quite a place, really. But yeah, I would say if I had an extraordinary technique, extraordinary experience with the technique, I could go over various things that you do learn, all of which are extraordinary. But certainly, one of the big things was after seven months or so, when I started getting on stage with it, doing improvs, I found that. I was looking forward to Friday nights intently because I would go into this high state of emptiness, right? And what happened is over time, I'd stay in that state till Saturday. And then after a few more months, I'd be in the state Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And eventually it extended to the whole week. Uh, so that's a little bit about what you're saying is that eventually you, you do attain what the Buddhists would call a certain samadhi a certain ability to go into emptiness. And so like, just to get the timeline straight, so it started as just an informal group with John Voigt and then David Proval started it as a an actual class. Yeah, David had to make some money. And so he said he'd run the class. And of course, you work with David on Nunzio with your writing partner at the time, James Andronica. Well, actually, James was James was was uh, David Proval's friend originally. I met James through Proval. Ah, okay. And this would have been seventies, eighties. When would this have been? Oh no, definitely. This is uh, uh, seventy-four. Seventy-four. Uh, it's funny. I'm just because uh, I'm trying to place this in John Voigt's timeline and I'm just looking at this. So this is something I I had not known, maybe you were aware of. I because in 75 it looks like he turned down the Dreyfus role in Jaws. And you said that Dreyfus <laughs> used to attend the classes. Just kind of funny. He, you know. he was not a regular. Dreyfus was not a regular. John was there more than Rick. Well Oh you know who you know the reg the regulars were more like uh, Andy Garcia and uh, that guy D'Onofrio. Of Vince D'Onofrio? Uh, yeah, that's right, Vince D'Onofrio, Judge Reinhold, uh, and Terry Garr. And uh, hey, Leonard Cohen came down for a while. All kinds of people came down for a while. Yeah, that's a Meisner class. Now that's wild. So wait, Andy Garcia would have been later because he wouldn't have been. Andy Garcia and Vince D'Onofrio wouldn't have been hanging out in this class in 74. That would have been more like the early 80s, right? No, no, no. No, I can check it in the book, but uh, no, it was it was not in the 80s. How long did the, were you in the class? The, 70s. the class is about 10 years. Yeah, so I guess that, that it might make more sense just because I know that like D'Onofrio first showed up in... 
Full Metal Jacket, like 84, 85. Yeah, well, I'm sure this preceded his being in Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, but he was pretty young in that, I'm thinking. Well, you know, I, I, I can, but I can totally see. It's funny when you say that Andy Garcia studied Meisner. I can totally see that in his work. He had uh-huh. that, especially early on, he had that odd state of freedom in his delivery. And just he just he was so free as an actor. Well, all right. Right. Well, all those guys, I mean, Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Chris Walken, John, Bob Duval, they all worked in that technique. Well, and of course, uh, De Niro sort of did a demonstration of it in one of his most famous scenes. When I learned the Meisner technique, it was like, wait a second, is Robert De Niro just doing Meisner with himself in the mirror in the You Talking to Me scene in Taxi Driver? And my teacher was like, yeah, that's kind of what he's doing. You talking to me? You talking to me? Then who the hell else are you talking? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Oh yeah? Huh? Okay. Huh? about that he uh, De Niro had his own very special way of approaching acting and uh, I think he was closer to the English actors actually in his approach um, with a very 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 strong imaginary circumstance in some sense it was the opposite of the Meisner technique in fact I don't know this, you know, this is speculation, but I always thought when you saw De Niro act with Nicholson, Nicholson definitely was using the uh, Meisner technique. And in the scene they did together in The Last Tycoon, you could see that De Niro's imaginary circumstance was extremely strong, and he took the the space directly between him and Nicholson. He was as powerful as Nicholson easily. But Nicholson was also including the the fact that he was Jack Nicholson and there was Bob De Niro. And how did he feel about that? And he's Jack Nicholson and he's Bob De Niro and the crew's watching them. How does he feel about the crew watching them do the scene? So his uh, Nicholson's performance was enveloping. And although De Niro certainly controlled the that central corridor, he was kind of engulfed by... Uh, Nicholson. I thought that was a, an amazing scene, actually, between them. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. Uh, so that's uh, I'm, I'm very curious to see that. We, we always hear about the De Niro and Pacino scene from Heat, but I don't hear many people talking about the De Niro and Nicholson scene from The Last Tycoon. So uh-huh. thanks for pointing us in that direction. Moving on from Meisner... I want to talk a little bit about the events that are upcoming for you and for the appreciation, the, the growing reappreciation of your films. The Roxy Theater in New York City is going to be doing a week-long, more than a week-long retrospective of your films. 
And if people, if we have any listeners who are on the East Coast and are thinking of they might want to come out, you're going to be doing a Q&A at the Roxy Cinema in New York City on March 31st. I will be in attendance uh, and I'm looking forward to that. And then they're also going to be showing your films. They're going to be showing a 35 millimeter print of Out of It on March 22nd, March 25th and March 31st. They're going to be showing a 35 millimeter print of The Revolutionary on March 23rd and March 25th. They're going to be showing a 35 millimeter print of The November Man that I am incredibly excited to see on March 29th and April 2nd. I'm going to be there on the 29th and just really it is it's it's for me the cinematic event of the year. Because, you know, listeners to the show know how much I love that movie. And I never thought I would be able to see it on a big screen with an audience. And then we're also, you're also going to be showing, they're going to be screening a 35 millimeter print of Mirage on March 29th and April 1st. And unfortunately, not a 35 millimeter print, but they will be showing Dealing on March 30th, the one showing of dealing. So I just want to talk with you about what your thoughts are about this opportunity for people to see not your entire filmography, but a, a, the, the majority of it on a big screen in New York City. Well, you know, I have written a book called Harvard Hollywood Hitmen and Holy Men. Really? Which is, <laughs> which is the name of this retrospective as well at the Roxy. So uh, for me, it's, uh, it's part of this swan song, you know, the last uh, public gasp of the old geezer. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly interested in seeing these movies myself because I hate all my movies. You know, I usually sit there and I just see everything that's wrong, what could be better. And I, I definitely have one of those personalities that is not in love with my own work. But as I'm so old now, maybe I've developed some distance and maybe I can enjoy them. It'll be interesting to see. Maybe I can forgive myself. That's a good, that's a good goal. I think for every artist. I think <laughs> most artists have some, some, that kind of relationship with their work. You know, we, we look at it and think, yeah, I, yeah, it's yeah, fine. It's good, but you can't see that part is wrong. That that thing I should never have done. Well, I'll tell you what. What what I do like though is that I was on to certain things forty years ago. That have now are your current events. I mean, this whole thing about the inequality of income and the, you know, the destruction of uh, uh, the society. Uh, by tremendous inequalities. I mean, I was on to that stuff very early, and it, uh, in a way, may have ruined my life in some way, but I've been on it for a lifetime. And, you know, for me, I've just been a witness to the destruction of the country and the world by industrial capitalism and greedy materialism. And uh, so, in that sense, there's a certain honesty and clarity and correctness about what the films are about yeah are you expecting any of i mean new york city and that the east coast was certainly a you know a stomping ground for you growing up and as a young man 
Are you expecting any of the old crew or any of your old uh, friends to come out and check out these, the screening? Maybe I, put in I, appearance. I don't know. I I've been in the Brazilian jungle for you know a decade <laughs> or more here now, so uh, I don't know. John Lithgow might show up for dealing. I have no idea. My first cousin I haven't seen in thirty years was a professor of history. He said he's going to come in from Princeton. Uh, but, uh, and there's some people I know. Oh, I gotta get rid of these. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, that was Elliot Gould, actually. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Here he is. Here, I'm, I'm on, Elliot, I'm on a podcast. Oh, great. <laughs> so you're now on a podcast. Oh, great. <laughs> did you get that? Th oh, did you see, I sent you that thing about, uh, Sid Caesar. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I great. thought of you when I saw that. Anyway, uh, so, uh, great. You're going to be coming here for uh, sometime in April, right? Right. I'm going to be in New York at uh, for that retrospective till the end of April. And then I'm coming to L.A. And they're going to do a, f a few screenings. Uh, I'm not supposed to say this publicly because they haven't announced it yet. But at the uh, New Beverly. Well, oh, great. Great. But yeah, so that's on the 18th and 19th. Oh, uh, the only thing was supposed to, if you, you can uh, edit supposed to, and uh, that uh, we're thinking of uh, uh, of it, uh, that which would be nice. Uh, you know, uh, at any rate, I don't want to, uh, uh, I'm not here to, t to do business or to talk <laughs> politics and carry on. And, uh, I look forward to seeing you in April. Okay, great. Bye. Bye. Well, that was a synchronicity. <laughs> yeah. He's a great guy, actually. He is, yeah, I think, universally regarded as a great guy. We have wonderful talks. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a very, uh, uh, what's the word, evolved person. Did you ever have plans to work on anything together, or is it just a pure friendship? I don't know. Uh, it's really just been a friendship. Um, I originally met him when I was living with Karen Black, and Karen and I did a started doing a movie together called Breaking Up with Paul. And Ellie came to watch The Rushes one night, and I really liked him. And then he, then he started uh, showing up in my life, and I always loved seeing him. He's. Uh, I remember one of the, he said said some nice things, but now they've almost become commonplace. But he tells a nice story about the interview they did with him, where they asked he's where he told them he knew when he was going to die. And he said, oh, "Really? When are you going to die?" And he says, "When I die, it will be now." Hmm. So, which really brings us back to the what we were talking about to start this off, which is the Meisner acting sure. technique which is really it's 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 funny to think about because it is it is a an actor's way of getting at something that athletes have their way of getting at that spiritual people have their way of getting at and i just i've always found it so cuz you know acting is acting is a it is such a striving pursuit you know, you really have to work at it, work at not just doing it, but you have to work at wanting to be seen and wanting to be chosen and putting yourself out there. And there's such a striving to it, 
which is so at odds with yeah, what the Meisner yeah, technique teaches you. And so that I've, I've just always found that push pull in, in the Meisner acting technique, as opposed to a, a spiritual technique designed to help you get present or even a physical technique that, you know, there isn't as much of a striving to, to be something you know, if you want to be an athlete, you want to put the ball in the well, hole. Well, it seems to me you're confusing a couple of things here. I, mean, I always on one am. hand, you have per, you have personality and, and ego, you know, which most people have. And then really, when you go into the acting space, you leave personality and ego behind. Uh, but many actors, of course, when they're not acting, their personality and egos move in, and then they have a tremendous uh, ambition. But they're two very different states uh, of being. Absolutely. I guess I because I encountered Meisner at an acting class full of young actors who were wanting to get someplace, I just found it really interesting how the technique took us out of that. Oh, right, right, right. Well, you know who had a class, too? I forget what the guy's name is. He wrote a book called No Acting, Please. I actually used him in dealing. I gave him a scene. Uh, but, you know, he had a class even before Meisner. And which was using a lot of this, he did a lot of sense memory work. And a lot of really great actors studied with him first before Meisner. I forget, Sandy, what was his name? Eric Morris no, and no. Joan Hotchkiss. Eric Morris, that's who it was, Eric Morris. And a lot of people studied with Eric Morris. And you'd be lying on the ground, you know, for hours trying to get back your sense memories and be still. I mean, he was, he was very much into... You're pretending to pretend. You know what I mean? It's all real. Yeah. Something about the the thing I loved about the Meisner is that it puts it outside of you. It trusts that your instrument is going to respond the way it's going to respond. And you're going to find that in your acting partner, not in some past experience. Although that's also useful. Yeah. And, you know, by the way, the Meisner technique... I, Lots of people started teaching it, um, you know, and uh, and adapting it to their own particular way of teaching acting. You know, I'm I'm thinking as we're as we're sitting here talking, we kind of let the cat out of the bag, and I think I'm just going to release this episode once the new Beverly announces, which will be probably a couple days after our normal release. So uh -huh. let's talk a little bit about that. You're going to be coming after New York. You're going to be coming to L.A. They're going to be showing. Well, actually, first I'm going to go to Boston to see some old friends. Okay, great. And, uh, and uh, then I'm going to go to Santa Fe and see my daughter, and then I'll head to L.A. Where they're going to be screening Out of It and The Revolutionary on April 18th and 19th at my right. favorite movie theater, the New Beverly Cinema. We've had to keep it secret up until now, but now we can... Let the world know. And I think it's a funny synchronicity that they're going to be showing the revolutionary on April 19th, which is Patriot's Day and the first shot, uh, the day, the anniversary of the first shot of the Revolutionary War. Well, April 19th, that's a pretty good day. A pretty good day in the U.S. of A. Grand old flaggy pile of rain. 
shatters the illusion that I'm actually free. So I turn to my history and I see that April 19th was when the first shot was fired in the Revolutionary War, which transpired was a great conflagration in which I'm told we were successful. And now we rule the world, man. We really got our hands full. But in Oklahoma City, several bombs were detonated. Should have been heard by the world, but the world had been so dated and heard by one. On April 19th, on April 19th, I'm talking about April 19th. Yeah, April 19th. Well, the folks that died at week, oh man, they never got that turn. But the folks that died at week, oh man, Top burn. That's a pretty good day. A pretty good day in the U.S. of fucking A. I got my hands full and barely got my rent paid. I worked down at the landfill and last night I got laid. The folks that died at Waco they was waiting on the Lord. Instead they met the letter of another. So, uh, but uh, have you been to the New Beverly, Paul? Yeah, but, you know, not in the last 20 years. So not since Tarantino took it over, but after it was a porn theater. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a, I think Henry Jaglum was owning it when I went there. Wow. I didn't know Henry Jaglum owned it. I don't know if he owned it, but uh, he was the one who was organizing things down there, or he wanted to do it. I don't remember, but I remember it was Henry was very excited about it. Were you friends with Henry Jaglum? I was in his. I acted in a couple of his movies, Tracks, with Dennis Hopper, and uh, you know, uh, Can She Bake a Cherry Pie with Karen. Small roles. It's funny because I I think <laughs> I I when I think of. Like if you had been a more ambitious director in the sense of like we talked about in our previous episode about how you would try and get your your next film being made before the last one came out. That was the way that most people were going about things, but you weren't. And so that necessarily meant your films were farther apart. You made less of them. But I... I look at guys like Henry Jaglum or... But, 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 but I w- I'd like to interject that, you know, Jean Renoir, the guy who made uh, Grand Illusion and, I mean, a very wonderful director, told me when I was 19 years old, he said, you know, you have maybe three films to make in your lifetime. After that, you start repeating yourself. So make sure you don't devote your whole life to making movies. Just take your time and live your life, too. And he told me that when I was, what, no, 21. And I took that to heart. So, yes, I didn't uh, continually make movies, but I was not 
I was definitely using the time in between them to have all kinds of adventures and uh, experiences. And uh, that's really the, the a lot of the book is talking right. about what I did between the films. And, you know, it had to do with holy men. It had to do with hit men. It had to do with, uh, you know, uh, the Black Panthers or the North Koreans or... Uh, the Black Hat Karmapa, or the guy who founded Domino's Pizza and the Pope. <laughs> there were all kinds of adventures that happened because I wasn't spending all my time making movies. Oh, yeah. It definitely makes a more interesting book because of it. I guess I was just going to say that... Oh, I'd say a more interesting life. <laughs> right. I was just going to say but that... That's my when, prejudice. When I look at the filmmakers who I feel like had the kind of careers that you would have had if you were a more ambitious Hollywood director. I look at guys like Henry Jaglum or actually the guy I really, I've been thinking about a lot in in the context of you is Paul Mazursky. Uh -huh. So just more feeling films about like not murder movies, not heist movies, right. <laughs> not shoot 'em ups, right. but movies about people and odd experiences like they're quasi comedies, quasi dramas. Do you do you see or you know? Feel I, that I think I well, I tell you who do you know who do I regard as really wonderful directors? You know, it's really a guy like Mike Lee, uh, Mike Lee, uh, the English guy, mm -hmm. and Ken Loach, and there are a whole bunch of directors whose films uh, and Louis Malle. Well, and of course, I still admire very much Oliver Stone and his documentaries as well as his many of his movies uh, yeah in fact uh, yes I would say in some sense Oliver's uh, my favorite American director have you seen his documentary on Ukraine no no I haven't yeah I've been reading about it I've been meaning to watch it banned on YouTube but still available on some other platforms so you know you're you know you're still doing you're doing the work if you're still being banned. <laughs> so yeah, but bringing it back to Los Angeles, we had we had an appearance from Elliot Gould on this call, amazing. Uh, but are there any other friends of yours from LA who you think might crawl out of the woodwork when they hear Paul Williams is coming back to town? Well, you never know. A lot of them have died recently. Um... <laughs> yeah, sadly, James so, Andronica uh, would have been, I'm sure he would have loved to have participated in uh, this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe Rafelson, too, died just recently. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So I have no idea who might show up. I really don't. You know, Karen Black's gone. Margot Kidder's gone. Carrie Snodgrass is gone. All kinds of people. But I don't know. Maybe they'll show up. I, I mean, I'd love, I, I'd love to see Steven Spielberg show up for Out of It. Let me tell you, <laughs> that would be wonderful. Yeah. I, now, I mean, you, you bring that up, and maybe this is a, a, a insensitive question for uh, a younger person to ask. But you know, here you are. You, as you just talk about it, you are a, You're one of the sole survivors of that generation. <laughs> You're carrying the story. You're telling the story. I mean, that must be a, a bittersweet experience, but I wonder if you have no, any thoughts on that. No, no, no. It's not the least bit bittersweet. 
Oh, God, this stuff keeps falling down. No, it's, let me repeat, no, it's not bittersweet. It's life, and it's fine with me the way it unfolds. Um, you know, many people, I've had a very wonderful life with all kinds of adventures and stories, which I wouldn't have had if I were more of a monomaniac. And so I'm very happy <laughs> with the, the state uh that I've arrived in uh, through, you know, following, you know, my inner compass of truth. And, uh, you know, death is part of life. And uh, uh, I don't know, it's, it's all it's all okay with me. I even think of these film festivals as dust in the wind that's going to blow away. But it's, you know, it's dust I'm interested in <laughs> being hit by in the next few weeks but then it's over yeah in and the moment in the moment it, in the moment that it's happening it's you know it'll probably be a lot of fun right it's the players it's a it's the golf the big golf match mm -hmm. pay attention to the next shot well i can say that i'm i'm looking forward to all of it i'm looking forward to the the new york screenings i'm looking forward to the los angeles screenings i'm looking forward to more people finding and discovering these films and the conversations that are going to come out of those uh, in in my in the the world of film podcasters I'm looking forward to more of my peers finding and discovering this work and of course encouraging people to get your book and read all of these stories because we're only we're like as I'm I, it's funny I've been thinking about this we've been talking a lot and we've been barely scratching the surface of the book with these stories that you've been reading. It's uh, just a, a small fraction of the great stuff that's in there. So it's going to be an exciting month. Well, you know, the name of the Roxy retrospective is Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen, and Holy Men. Now, I, I'm still waiting for my books to arrive, Paul. They've, it's been, it's just, I ordered them at the very beginning of, of this my goodness. campaign. Did so. you well, most people have gotten them. Did you write a letter? Did you call them? Uh, I'm. They said they were delivered to my place in Olympia, and I'm waiting for them to be forwarded here. So, well, I'll bring some extra copies so I can give you one if you don't get it. Awesome, cool. <laughs> well, if you're on the East Coast, get your tickets for the Roxy. If you're on the West Coast, get your tickets for the New Beverly. And if you're in the middle of the country, buy a plane ticket. <laughs> hey, folks. Andras here. Thanks for following along with the podcast. I hope it's something you're enjoying and maybe it's even inspiring you to check out some of Paul's films and if you haven't already seen them, some of the films he's talking about. We're going to be taking a few weeks off from the podcast to engage in some real world activities. I'm about to fly to New York City to see Out of It, The Revolutionary, Dealing, Mirage, and the screening I am most excited for the November Men. Most of them all on 35mm, except Dealing, sadly. Gotta work on that. And that's gonna be at the Roxy Cinema at the end of March, and the links will be in the show notes. If you're in New York City, you gotta come out for that, especially the November Men screenings, but all of them. Uh, really, check it out. I wrote something for the Roxy website about the film, so I'll, I'll post all those links in the show notes. Now, after New York City, Paul will be coming out to Los Angeles for the screenings of Out of It and The Revolutionary at the New Beverly Cinema on April 18th and 19th. 
and we're trying to set up some kind of event, some maybe like a happy hour before the uh, the showing on the 19th with Paul's books and all kinds of fun stuff. So please follow our social media accounts for that information as it becomes available. I intend to document all of these events as much as I can, and I will share as much of it as is interesting in a podcast when we return probably toward the end of April. After that, I'd like to finish this season of the podcast with an episode full of questions for Paul from you who have been following this podcast. I mean, after listening to the preceding episodes, how can you not want to seek some wisdom from this wise Hollywood elder who I am sure would hate this description of him, but that's what he is for me and maybe for you too. If so, please send your questions for Paul to contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. The link to purchase Paul's book, Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen, and Holy Men, is in the show notes. And you can still find our posts on Instagram at the World is Wrong Podcast and on Twitter at World is Wrong Pod. Until next time, I'm your host, Andras Jones, reminding you that wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. No California well, Mr. Bremer? No. I spend most of my time in New York. Is he? Oh, yes. Your name's well known here. Yours is well known in New York, Mr. Starr. You have done well by water, and you by land. What? Anthony and Cleopatra, didn't you recognize it? Shakespeare? No, I didn't get any Shakespeare at school. How about you, Mr. Brimmer? Oh, a bit. Where do you come from? Tennessee. Baptist. I'm New York Jewish. I know. Oh, at least we're all Americans. We sure are, Mr. Starr. Well, I'm glad you came out here. I wanted to talk to you. You've got my writers all upset. Keeps them from going to sleep, doesn't it? I want them awake, but I don't want them crazy. Well, <clears throat> we're simply concerned that they have the proper protection. That's all. Who from, me? You're a very good employer, Mr. Starr, but uh, we still think that the position can be rationalized. I'll tell you three things. All writers are children. 50% are drunks. And up till very recently, writers in Hollywood were gag men. Most of them still are gag men, but we call them writers. Uh-huh. But uh, they're still the farmers in this business. They grow the grain, but they're not in at the feast. It looks to me like a try for power, Mr. Brimmer, and I will not give them power. I'll give them money. I won't give them power. 
Anyway, they're not equipped for authority. <laughs> More coffee, Mr. Brimmer? No, thank you. Monroe? No. I don't get to meet Reds very often. Are you a real Red? A real one. Please do. Well, I guess some of you believe in it. Quite a few. Not you. Oh, yes. Oh, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8 Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show.